Hello everyone, and welcome back to MIR Meets. Okay, this, this is an episode that I've been looking forward to for quite a while now. So David French is a columnist for the New York Times, and he writes about plenty of different subjects, whether it be abortion, Republican Party politics in general, um, the chances of Donald Trump winning, and so on and so forth. But one of the things that I find really interesting about him is that he's often, and I mentioned this later on in the episode, but he's often presented himself as being in the role of critiquing institutions that he's belonged to or been very close to. For example, he is a never-Trump conservative who's willing to condemn many of the more reactionary aspects of present-day right-wing discourse. He's an evangelical Christian with many of plenty of criticisms of the failures of the present-day church, and so on and so forth. So I had a blast talking with him about all the different facets of his ideology and why he considers it that form of like not self-criticism but a willingness to like take your own group to town when necessary. Why he considers that so important. And so yeah, I really hope you enjoy that. And uh, one of the things I also loved was at the beginning. So like I was I was like fiddling around with my mic trying to make sure that the audio quality was just going to be just right. And then we ended up getting into this very interesting discussion at the beginning about podcasts, like how podcasts differ from articles, which one tends to be more nuanced, and like the pros and cons of both. So yeah, look forward, I, I hope you enjoy that part of the discussion too, and yeah, time, to, time for the episode to begin. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Going well. Nice to see you, Andrew. Yeah, could you give me like 60 seconds? I'm trying to like... Yeah, deal sure. with it. Make sure there are no technical difficulties. You, you, yeah, you, not a problem. Yeah, I'm sure you know how it goes. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, this is not my first rodeo. Yeah, this is like your like 212. I would guess. Uh, no, that's low. That's low. Like uh, 1,030th. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Would you say you've been on more podcasts or written more articles? Oh, it's still more articles because I. So I've been writing since the early 2000s, starting off and on. But uh, I haven't been podcasting until much more recently. But I would say since I've started podcasting, I've done more podcasts than I have written articles. And it's probably not close, <laughs> to be honest, between being a guest and being a host. And and uh, yeah, no, I enjoy yeah. podcasting. It's fun. Yeah. So I guess uh, so. The, the question I'm going to ask, this was originally going to be my last question, but I think I might throw it in at the, as the, at the beginning as like an icebreaker. Which medium do you think does a better job communicating nuanced ideas, podcasts or articles? Because I've gotten in like to an argument with a friend where I think podcasts do a better job communicating nuance, but he thinks that like writing and articles do it. So uh, which one do you think does a better job? Long form essays, best podcast second best short columns third so yeah. now a book i think trumps all of them and a book you can really flesh it out but the reason why i put a long form essay over a podcast is because podcasts are almost always extemporaneous and so um what you're going to have is some imprecision often in your podcast conversation that you're not going to have in a well fact-checked multiple drafts long form piece of journalism that's going to be and for me, anyway, that's always been the best expression of my point of view. Then I would say podcasts. And then I love writing columns, but um, they're often, they just have to be short, relatively short, 1,100 words, 1,200 words. And you can be the best in the business, and you're not going to be able to communicate all the necessary nuance in 1,100, 1,200 words. 
Yeah, it's like maybe there are times where you're writing a column, you, you're, you're writing something and you're you're thinking, oh, I wish that I could like say this point to qualify what I'm saying and like just like add this like extra additional layer. But like it doesn't really fit the structure and like it has to be around 1100 words. Well, and the, the more you do it and the better you get at it, you can you learn to do shorthand signifiers that there's more complexity here. So, for example, I will often say when I'm writing a piece that's about one of many explanations for a certain cultural phenomenon, I will say very quickly, I reject monocausal explanations for complex social phenomenon, but here's one. And so what that does is it broadcasts to people that there's a lot more out there. I can't get into it, but I'm just going to get into this one thing. And so if somebody comes back at you on social media and says, but what about this or what about that? You can say, I acknowledge there is a this and a that. And I said in the piece, there's not one explanation, but here is an explanation. So there are things you can do, but still 1100, 1200, 1300 word cap means that you're just not going to get into everything. And look, that's fine. Not every piece of writing can deal with every nuance. Uh, sometimes all you can communicate and all people are able to absorb is the sort of the one big idea that you can communicate in a column. Yeah. But like if you were to go like a little bit deeper, then maybe podcasts can do a slightly better job of like the approach, like it can convey a sense of complexity to like the political ecosphere. And like, I guess the analogy I would pull would be analogous to, for example, the way that Star Wars deals with world building of like sort of giving the impression that there's a much larger world to the audience. Oh, yeah. Podcasts are great at communicating the reality of a larger world. The only reason why I put like a long form essay over a podcast is because, as I said earlier, podcasts often communicate nuance pretty well. They're not as good at precision unless you launch a podcast and you have 37 tabs up where you're able to like walk through precise data in a very precise way, which, yeah, or course, you have like 37 interns that are working for you and like constantly Googling simultaneously. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So that you know, so if you're talking about some of our flagship Times podcasts, you know, like I love Ezra Klein's podcast. So A, Ezra is brilliant and thorough and and precise. And B, he also has a phenomenal team working with him. And that, that they fact check, they um, edit. So a so an Ezra Klein podcast, when it goes up, is not just Ezra shooting from the hip with his guest. There's a lot more to it. And so that's yeah. a podcast that gets a lot closer to, say, a what you know, I, I heavily fact checked long form essay, but most podcasts, ninety nine point nine percent of podcasts, 90, yeah, ninety nine point nine 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 percent, right? Just don't you don't have those resources. You don't have, you know, uh, Ezra is is a phenomenally talented podcaster. So you have a combination of talent and resources that you're not going to have in every podcast. And so, um, you know, some of the most popular po podcasts, it's kind of funny. You'll see guests go back and forth um, over easily Googleable issues, yeah, <laughs> and and easily fact checkable issues right there. And you're like, guys, could you not just hit the pause button and like, well, figure but, this out? Yeah, I just to play devil's advocate for a bit. Maybe the whole thing about them like trying to Google these issues. Maybe that's more like authentic to the audience than if you were to pause recording and like pretend that you do it. Yeah, it's more entertaining for sure. I think. Um, but whether or not that's 
communicating nuance or confusion, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think is the is the real question. Yeah. So maybe there is like some kind of like obviously ninety nine point nine 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 percent of podcasts don't have the resources, but maybe there is some middle ground somewhere that has like the best of both worlds in terms of like having the sort of like banter and like entertainment value of a podcast while still like like having like 37 interns that can allow you to be as precise as possible. Right. No, I mean, obviously that there are podcasts who do this better and worse. Um, but, you know, for I, I have a legal podcast called Advisory Opinions and we work hard to be really precise, even though we don't have the same staff and all of that. Um, but you know what that means? That means a giant amount of prep. That means uh, a lot of timeouts in the podcast with the, our, our poor producer, Adam. We're like, time out, Adam. I got to find the precise language from this Supreme Court opinion or whatever. And then so we we uh, it's not exactly the same as just like sitting down in someone's living room and watching two smart people have a conversation, which is a fun way to do podcasts. But for that podcast, a legal podcast, you got to be precise or you're going to beclown yourself. And even when we try hard to be precise, we don't always get it exactly right. So we will frequently go back and start the next podcast if we missed a nuance or something like that and say, hey, in the previous podcast, we said X. It was really, we really, it, that was mostly correct, but not entirely correct. And here's why. And so, you know, we really try to be transparent with the listeners that, look, we're trying to be super precise. We try to get everything right, but we're not always going to. But our promise to you is we're going to, when we know we're wrong, we're going to we'll go back and correct it. Yeah. But maybe like the goal is to get to the point where you're only wrong about as often as like reporters writing an article might be wrong. It right. Yeah. The goal is to be as precise as a fact check fact-checked essay that's the goal um or you know a a, a fact-checked reporting that's the goal it is um difficult it's difficult because yeah. good reporting good long-form essays are always a team effort and again 99.999 percent of podcasts you don't have access to the same team it's it's usually just a man or a woman or both talking about stuff that they generally know a lot about or at least believe they know a lot about and it's it's much less precise yeah all right so i um i guess time for the introduction david french thank uh -huh. you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast happy to do it all right so i guess we're gonna start with the topic of donald trump so like <laughs> i think yeah um i think there's been a little bit of Trump fatigue syndrome in the air just because of how much he's dominated the news cycles for like the past eight years or so. Um, but I guess the then the question is like, do you think it's possible just because of how tired we are of talking to him to like accidentally underrate some of the potential dangers of a second Trump presidency? Oh, it's absolutely the case that people are underrating his danger in large part, I think, because of exhaustion. They're sick of it. They don't want to hear it. Um, there's a lot of denial of no, of course he wouldn't do everything that people, his allies, or even he says that he's going to do. Now, I don't know why people post January 6th will say, well, he's more, more blessed. He's more bark than bite. I think, you know, January 6th demonstrated and the, the big lie demonstrated there's a lot of, a lot of bite behind his bark, but you're absolutely right. People are tired of it. In fact, there's an entire, um, phenomenon that has been documented and it's called uh the exhausted majority and uh, this has been documented by a group called more in common 
And it talks about how, you know, roughly two thirds of Americans are in this community of people who are just done. They're sick of it. Okay. They're very angry at the way politics is done, but rather than leaning in to engage, to fix it, they're sort of just backing away. They're just over it entirely. And I, I've used this analogy in speeches about the exhausted majority where have you ever seen the Homer Simpson gif where he is slowly backing into the shrubbery with his eyes wide? Yeah. That's the exhausted majority. They walk out, they look at political conversation and it's shocking and toxic and cruel. And so with their eyes wide, they kind of recede back into the shrubbery. And then I think that's where a lot of people are right now is in the shrubbery. <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want to be in the mix. Yeah. It's like, it's in, in, there are some ways that it's so horrifying that they just look away because they like, they, they just don't want to be exposed to that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, look, it's toxic to be, to have political conversations for everybody now, not just people who are public figures. So, you know, I expect when I write something that it's going to make some people very mad. You know, I, when in, if you write at the Times, there is nothing you can say that isn't going to make some community mad, right? And so I'm used to it. This is part of the job. Now, there are elements to it that go way beyond the pale um, of propriety when it gets into threats and harassment and things like that. But I shouldn't do what I'm doing if I'm not prepared for blowback. But if I'm not David Times columnist, but I'm just David husband, grandfather, father, you know, son, and I'm engaging with friends and family on social media, you shouldn't expect vitriol and viciousness and cruelty. Um, and But that's how it is in the United States right now. I, I don't know of a single person who has said something political on social media one way or the other and who has not experienced a toxic response. Just yeah. toxic. And that goes from columnists at the Times, politicians, athletes, entertainers, and just regular folks who have an, a thought or an idea. And you can, as soon as you put it out there, you're going to experience cruelty and you're going to experience blowback. And it's exhausting. It's infuriating. It can be radicalizing, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's it's very dangerous. Yeah. Like to, to be blunt, our social media algorithms suck. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, they're well, it depends on how you define the word suck. Do they are they good for our community and our society? No. In that con in that context, they really do. Are they very efficient at delivering content to you that you like to see? Yes, they're very effective at their job. But unfortunately, their job is not to uh, sustain a constitutional republic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then on the on the on the topic of trying to make sure that the constitutional republic does not collapse. Um, so what are some like potential dangers of a second Trump presidency that like like someone who might be in the know or has done quite a bit of research might realize the ways that it might be really insane, but like are not as like widely known by the silent majority? Well, here's one. And this is one that isn't talked about enough because quite frankly, in American politics, foreign policy rarely moves the needle unless you're in the middle of an absolute meltdown crisis. So the way I've put it is foreign policy doesn't matter until it matters. And when it matters, it really matters. There's sort of no gap between 
zero and a hundred uh, when it comes to American concern about foreign policy. So here's my real concern. Uh, this would be a catastrophe, a catastrophe. Trump comes in. He has a lot of hostility toward Ukraine, by the way. So he comes in, he cuts off aid to Ukraine, allowing Vladimir Putin to prevail in his war. And then at the same time, he has contemplated and mused out loud of either just flat out gutting NATO or leaving NATO entirely. A combination of a Russian victory combined with American hesitance or withdrawal within NATO would be a geopolitical catastrophe. It would be a world historic turning point that would set us on a path back towards great power war. The very thing that NATO and the UN were created to avoid, it would put us on a bat on a path towards that. Um, domestically, there's just no indication the man cares about the constitution, Andrew, just no, no indication at all. So, and there has never been any indication, never been any indication. Now in his first term, you know, one of the things that he did early on was he brought in a bunch of a very experienced senior Republican establishment figures um, to guide, help him guide his administration. You know, uh, and those people spent about four years or however long they were in the administration, often putting both feet on the brakes. So a secretary Mattis uh, is putting the is trying to do trying to do his best to put his feet on the brakes to try to avoid the worst of Trumpism. You have people in the DOJ, you know, my, uh, there were, there was everything from Jeff Sessions to Rod Rosenstein basically spent a ton of their time. Well, not so much Sessions because he recused, but Rosenstein defending and protecting the Mueller investigation. So it could finish its vital work. So you had a lot of people in the administration who were telling him, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. Well, he's done with that now, Andrew. He's done with that. He does not want any naysayer. He does not want anyone saying no to him. And in these eight years since he has been a central figure in the GOP, he now has a stable of lawyers, of politicians, of diplomats, you name it, who are thoroughly MAGA and Trumpist and will not be putting their feet on the brakes. They're going to be putting their foot feet on the gas. And that's what I don't think Americans realize uh, at scale because a lot of Republicans are nostalgic for the Trump administration, are nostalgic for a specific period of it, which was early on when he had some good judicial nominations by a, a Republican perspective. He passed a good tax plan, again, by a Republican perspective. But a lot of this was the influence of the very people he now hates. And so he, all of the stuff that your rank and file Republican is sort of nostalgic for from early Trump term. He's rejected that. He's moving on from that. He's not going to be that. But like and they're I just sort of think... they're misattributing like where they should give credit to, like who they should give. Credit oh, sure. To. Yeah. So, for example, your average MAGA person hates Mitch McConnell, hates him. But then if you say, Mr. MAGA, what is your favorite thing about the Trump term? Odds are high on the list will be judicial nominations. Well, he doesn't, he, Trump doesn't even get out of the starting gate on that without Mitch McConnell. He doesn't, Mitch McConnell's the one who blocked the Merrick Garland nomination to leave the seat open that Trump was able to fill with Neil Gorsuch. Um, McConnell is the guy who turned the Senate into a judicial confirmation machine with a very small majority. And, and so this idea that, well, that's, and oh, by the way, on the judges, 
how many of the judges that Trump appointed did he know one thing about? Zero, one, two, probably more likely zero. And who who fed him these judges? The very establishment Republicans that Trump now hates. And so a lot of this is a lot of Republicans are nostalgic for a, a, tr a Trump administration that Trump himself is rejecting. Man, I need to write a piece about that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I need to write that up. I look forward to that very eagerly. It kind of reminds me of something that your co-host Sarah Isger said at one point that like a lot of the times these establishment Republicans, even if they did do good in preventing the worst excesses of a Trump administration, they did like what do you say that they indirectly ended up giving the Trump administration like a false veneer of legitimacy that it didn't deserve? 100%. So this is a very hard moral question and strategic question, Andrew. Do you join in an administration that you believe is led by a deranged lunatic because you are worried about the damage that he'll do to the country will be irreparable and it's your patriotic duty to minimize the damage, which is the which is a very reasonable position, by the way. Or do you say, wait a minute, if I restrain him, I will obscure him to the voting public. The voting public won't realize who he is. And so as painful as it is to the body politic, they should have seen him for who he was right away. And that meant not restraining him. That's a hard, that's an interesting position. I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, don't, I actually don't know where I come down on this because I think the damage he could have done totally unrestrained might have been might have been irreparable um and if the damage was uh if the damage was could have been irreparable then a lot of the support and the logic behind will let everyone see who he was uh, a lot of that logic goes away it's kind of you know look andrew i think one thing that i think is important for people to realize just sort of in life is that evil people often leave good people with very few good options and so what often ends up happening is the good folks who are trying to mitigate the harm from evil get really frustrated with each other because none of their plans can fix everything. Yeah. And sometimes like the like someone has one plan about how to mitigate the badness, but then someone else who has like like he he sees a different angle of the situation and they might they might have a different plan to mitigate the badness that contradicts the, the other person's plan. Right. Yeah. It's so look, I think we, the people who are opposing authoritarianism should have vigorous debates about how best to oppose authoritarianism. But we should never lose sight that our opponent isn't the person who's joining us in opposing authoritarianism. The ultimate opponent is the authoritarian. And we might have disagreements with people who, uh, ag who are broadly on our side in opposing authoritarianism. But one of the dumbest things I've seen in in the last eight years is there's this kind of constant infighting amongst Trump opponents where it's sort of like, especially amongst conservative Trump opponents. So they're sort of like, my never Trumpism is better than your never Trumpism because my never Trumpism hasn't sold out to the left as much as your never Trumpism, to which they respond, no, my never Trumpism is better than your never Trumpism because I've understood political reality and we can't beat him without allying with Democrats. 
And you're just going to perpetuate this whole darn thing because of your you're clinging on to an outdated world in which you can't ally with Democrats. And so it just keeps going back and forth like this, Andrew. And it is a it's frustrating. And then because emotions and get involved and people get vicious and angry towards each other. And I'm like, time out, guys. Can we just let's just say this? Nobody knows exactly how to deal with Trumpism. Nobody does. So you know what we need? We need a lot of thoughts and we need a lot of different approaches here. And so just stop with this idea that you've got it all figured out and Bill or John over there is doing it all wrong. Why don't you do, why don't we let a thousand anti-Trump flowers bloom here? Anti-Trump flowers from both the left and the right. Um, Correct. All all of the different like stories that we all have about how we got here and what formed our philosophy. Like we all have our unique perspective about how we can prevent Trumpism from flourishing again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Would you say like, so like you brought up like the, the establishment Republicans that have like sort of tamed the first, like in the, when it came to the first Trump administration and prevented it from being as terrible as it could have been. Would you say that there might also be like a decent cadre of like right-wingers that initially sided with Trump because they like, like, sorry, uh, let me rephrase this. Would you say that there have been some right-wingers that may have like initially sided against Trump and like were initially never Trumpers, but sort of fell in line and like became part of like the the sort of um, Trump team over time and like have become more ready to fall in line because of like societal pressures? Oh, gosh. Um, I have seen uh, very few people go from never Trump to supporting Trump. That has happened. I have a seen a lot of people who've gone from Trump is my last choice uh, to Trump is my first choice. They've gone from he was my he was my fifteenth choice in the twenty sixteen primary to in twenty twenty they're the third boat in the in the boat parade. And so I've seen a lot of that happen. And I think there were several moments or several reasons for that radical transformation. So. One of them is a lot of people in 2016 just assumed he would they they at the end of the day, Andrew, they really disliked him mainly because they thought he'd lose to Hillary, um, that he was just a bad candidate, couldn't believe that he was the guy to take on Hillary Clinton and because their hatred for Hillary Clinton was off the charts. And so they were mad. They were already mad at Trump for losing to Hillary. OK, so then he wins and he's like the hero of the ages. Because then it all changed from, oh, great, we nominated the only guy who could lose to Hillary. And it turned into, no, we actually nominated the only guy who could beat Hillary. And then in 2017, when he nominated a very solid judge in Gorsuch, when he passed through a tax cut, there was a lot of folks who were saying, oh, this is not bad. It's not bad at all. But then as month after month wore on and week after week wore on, and Trump became more fully comfortable being Trump in office, um, a lot of that, a lot of things got a lot worse. Um, But, you know, that initial defeat of Hillary and then, and then Andrew, the social pressures within the right are overwhelming because it's not just the, the level of emphasis on loyalty and group solidarity and Trumpism is off the charts now, which is an irony because Trump has no loyalty to anybody. But he demands absolute loyalty from everybody. And 
So it sort of reminds me of the Leonidas quote in 300, the Zack Snyder movie, where he says, uh, I want you to give them nothing and take from them everything. That's like a Trump life motto. So I'm going to give you no loyalty, but I'm going to take from you every bit of the loyalty you have to give me. And that's just the way things are now in the GOP. And so if you don't want your life to be a sort of a, for at, at the extreme end, a living hell, we're harassed constantly, threatened, et cetera. Or on the other end, just feeling isolated and out and, and out ostracized from your community, well, then you got to fall in line. And so there's this enormous pressure to fall in line. And then it's like a, a middle school cafeteria um, psychology here, Andrew, because once you've compromised, you get angry when other people in your orbit don't. It's sort of like, I, you know, you're younger than me, so I seriously doubt that you had the phenomenon of smoking cigarettes in the bathroom of your high school. But in my high school, smoking was banned, but no, no, no administrator ever went into the bathroom. And so everyone's sitting around smoking in the bathroom. And if you walked in, I didn't smoke. Somebody's immediately handing you a cigarette and then getting mad at you when you won't, won't take it. Stupid, silly high school behavior, peer pressure type stuff, peer dynamic. But a lot of people don't ever grow up out of that, quite frankly. And if they compromise in a particular way, they become actively angry when other people don't compromise with them. And so you've seen that dynamic as well. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the more interesting aspects of that is like the whole thing about how Trump is loyal to no one, but demands like absolute loyalty from the people who follow him. Um, I think there's one really interesting strain of that that you've written about, I think, quite well. So could you talk a little bit about the way that Trump is treating the pro-life movement in America? Huh. Yeah, that's the base, best way to think about how does Trump treat dot, 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 anything or anyone is he uses it. He uses it and he gives them exactly enough or at least enough for them to feel like they're getting something out of the bargain, but always the priority is they have to serve him. And and the thing is, because Trump does not have a, any kind of fixed ideology other than Donald Trump must, Donald Trump wins, that's, that's Trumpism. Trumpism is Donald Trump wins, it's not an ideology. And so he, if he views the pro-life movement as a threat to his, to his potential to win, he's gonna throw it under the bus. If he believes that the pro-life movement will help him win, as it did in 2016, he'll embrace it. But if you remember 2016, he couldn't quite decide for a long time whether he was going to throw it under the bus. He said Planned Parenthood does wonderful things, for example, in the 2016 primary season. Um, he he had, and then and then he'll decide. Wait a minute, I can I can use this movement, and then he becomes the biggest pro-lifer of them all. And then all of a sudden, pro-lifers start losing a lot of elections, and then he's. Well, that's dumb. We're not going to do that. So the the North Star is for him is, does this help me? And so the pro-life movement in Trumpism is always going to be subordinate to Trump. Always. And so that that's the fundamental conundrum. But if he believes they will help him, he'll use them. And that's one of the reasons why the pro-life movement sometimes feels vindicated is they they say, well, we were used, but in a way that was good for us. Would you say like, so the whole thing about like the, the social pressures when it comes to Trumpism are enormous. Would you say that there are many ways that 
like the pro-life movement in America has essentially corrupted itself because of the ways that it has like tried to suck up to Trump. Oh yeah. So this is a big, this is a very big problem for the pro-life movement because essentially what the pro-life movement had fixed as its public enemy number one was not in many ways. And there's a subtle difference here, Andrew is public enemy. Number one, abortion or is it Roe v. Wade? Okay. If public enemy number one is abortion, the practice of abortion, we want there to be, we want a culture that protects life from conception till natural death. That's what we're after. That's what we want. Then that is one strategic approach. If if the ultimate uh, object of pro-life activism is a court decision, that's another approach. And so what ended up happening was that the pro-life movement I don't necessarily think out of conscious choice, but sort of out of political expedience said our ultimate enemy is Roe v. Wade. And so the problem when you, when you say the ultimate enemy is Roe v. Wade, there are a lot of ways you can end Roe v. Wade without actually impacting abortion, the actual practice of abortion. And what we have seen happen is that Roe v. Wade has ended, for which I applaud that. I'm pro-life. I thought Roe was wrongly decided. It's a terrible constitutional precedent. And I think reversing it was exactly right. But we have seen that even as the pro-life movement made more legal progress than it ever made, it collapsed. Its cultural power collapsed. And so if you go back and you look at abortion statistics in the United States, after Roe, abortion spiked, which you would expect that it would because all of a sudden abortion went from illegal most almost everywhere to legal everywhere. And the number of abortions shot up. But then about 80, 81, 82, the tide turned. And for the Reagan presidency, the Bush presidency, the Clinton presidency, the next Bush presidency, the Obama presidency, this is almost 40 years. Abortion rates ratio went down every presidency until by the end of Obama's second term, abortion rates were lower than they were before Roe was decided, which is remarkable. So abortion was less frequent in 2017 than it was when abortion was mostly illegal in the US. That's a huge pro-life victory. And part of the pro-life victory was convincing a lot of women who had unplanned pregnancies to keep their babies. And but then Trump, the what the pro-life movement calls the greatest pro-life president in history, Trump, that during the Trump administration, all of those, all of those trends reversed. So he became the first president since Jimmy Carter to see rate, ratio, and number of abortions increase. First president. And you might say, why? Why? You know, and and look, uh, I do not attribute single causes to complex social phenomena. But I do believe that Donald Trump had a particular role. And if you if you pull back, what you will see is during the Trump administration, virtually every cultural indicator of hope and optimism for the future declined. So marriage declined, childbirth rates declined, uh, murder rates increased, abortion rates increased, um, time and time, uh, deaths of despair increased. So all of these social and cultural markers that might indicate, do I have hope for the future versus despair about the future, move towards despair. 
And I don't think that's a coincidence that it occurred during the administration of probably the single most corrupt, divisive, and cruel president in the entire history of the United States. Yeah. Um, so I guess then the question now is like, how much faith do you personally currently in like right now in December of 2023, how much faith do you actually have in the pro-life movement to like make the right decisions? Zero. None. <laughs> I mean, look, Andrew, a big chunk of the pro-life movement has now become so magnified that I'm essentially ostracized. I used to speak at crisis pregnancy center fundraisers. I used to speak at pro-life gatherings. I am no less pro-life right now than I was in 2015. And yet I'm persona non grata in big chunks of the pro-life movement because of my position on Donald Trump. Okay, give me a break. That's absurd. That's absurd. It's ridiculous. And so what you have is a movement that has now become so consumed with the same identity of the GOP, which is now consumed with the identity of Donald Trump, that they will ostracize and despise people who agree with their underlying efforts, but disagree that they should support, they should throw their weight of their support behind the single most cruel and dishonest and corrupt man ever to hold the presidency. Yeah. So I guess when it comes to you and maybe like other like pro-life people who are nevertheless ostracized by the majority of the pro-life movement in America, like would you say there's like a difference between the rhetoric that you might use on abortion and the rhetoric that they might use when it comes to like talking to people that they might have strong disagreements with? Yeah, you know, that's a <clears throat> that's a great question. So I do think what the pro-life movement has become good at is policing the pro-life movement. <laughs> Okay. It has not been, and it's begun to lose a lot of its ability to reach people who are not pro-life. Okay. And so by this, you know, the amount of vitriol that I receive from pro-life people, because I don't want to, for example, imprison women who get abortions, or I believe that there should be <clears throat> clear exceptions outlined in any effective, in any um, pro pro-life law the vitriol that you get or the vitriol that you get for not supporting Donald Trump is overwhelming. Ask anyone who crosses sort of the more hardcore version of the pro-life movement. And one word that you'll get time and again is, is the word bully. They try to bully you. They'll call you a murderer. They'll say you're comfortable with murder. They'll say you don't care about babies. They, I mean, the level of rhetoric is unbelievable. And yet, Many of these same people, if they're confronting and they're talking to, let's say, a scared or confused young woman who has a lot of economic insecurity, who has an abusive boyfriend and is pregnant, calling that person a murderer if they consider abortion is not persuasion. Okay. It's not. And so, and then it's, it's, it's like its own form of virtue signaling, would you say? Yeah, I would say that. And the other thing is, under every foreseeable circumstance for the indefinite future, if we're going to reduce abortion in this country, we're going to have to persuade people who have legal rights to abortion secured by their state to choose not to have an abortion by the millions. There's just going to have to be over years, a comprehensive cultural effort to persuade people who have a right to an abortion that they 
should choose life for their child. And that is not accomplished by snarling. That is not accomplished by bullying. You know, some of the most effective parts of the pro-life movement are, are found in these crisis pregnancy centers where you often have completely underfunded volunteers, underfunded institutions manned by volunteers who have spent years talking to people and meeting people where they are in their time of confusion and, and fear and have not only met them where they are, but walked with them through a, a difficult time in their lives where they've emerged with a child that they love more than their own life. And that is the heart that is the heart of the pro-life movement. And if you substitute as the public face of the pro-life movement, that vision of it for the Donald Trump vision of it, you're just going to lose. You're just going to lose. And right now, there has just been no good news for the pro-life movement in the United States um, since Dobbs. Dobbs is good news for the pro-life movement, but since Dobbs, it has been loss after loss after loss. The poll numbers are terrible. Um, the outcomes have been terrible, even in red states. Andrew, that's not just blue states. The outcomes, Ohio, Kentucky, Montana, Kansas. Uh, so something is really, really wrong. And yet it appears to me that the pro-life movement, even right now, even today, when there are other Republicans who can become president, who have a much better way of approaching the public about abortion, they're still, for the vast majority, both arms wrapped around Donald Trump. Yes, <laughs> to say that that's a huge shame would be an understatement. Yeah, um, yeah. But I guess, I guess this, like, both the discussion, your discussion about the pro life movement and the discussion about Trump, sort of ties into something that I feel is kind of fascinating about you as a political commentator. And I think it all goes back to, so you made this one guest appearance on the Good Faith podcast once. I think it was the one that was done live. Um, so like it was towards the end where you, I'm going to quote you right now, quote, you cannot buy the lie that says that if you're holding your own institutions accountable, you're somehow disloyal. That's the opposite of the truth, end quote. So like I've often found you in the role of critiquing institutions that you've belonged in or have been like very close to. Like, for example, you're a never Trump conservative who's willing to condemn many of the more reactionary aspects of present day right wing discourse, whether it relates to Trump or abortion. And you're also, for example, an evangelical Christian with plenty of criticisms of the failures of the present day church, et cetera, et cetera. So to what extent do you think your prominence in modern day political discourse is because of your willingness to explicitly reject some of the more reactionary aspects of these types of institutions? Uh, that's a really good question. I think you know, it's a combination of factors. I think that I, I'm not naive. I know that um, people who are, if you're a Republican, if you're traditionally a Republican and you're critical of Republicans, there's a lot of people who want to read that, right? Yeah. Um, it's just, like, I have, uh, I have a friend who almost like, he made the argument once that like the never Trump movement essentially engages in respectability politics to make themselves look better to the media. Like, what do you say that's accurate? No, that's completely inaccurate, but it is accurate to say that uh, someone on the left is going to be drawn to read someone on the right who's been critical of the right. In much the same way, if you look on the right, a lot of people on the right are extremely interested in those dissenting voices on the left who've been critical of the left. And so, for example, um, 
nobody calls on the right calls Barry Weiss a grifter or sellout. Um, she's somebody who generally leans more left, I would say, than the median Republican, but has been very critical of the left. And uh, and I think and often right, rightly so, very has very keen critiques of the left. And so why is she not engaging in respectability politics and currying favor, but somebody who's critical of the right is engaged in respectability politics and, quote, currying favor? How about we do this, Andrew? How about we evaluate the argument? Evaluate yeah. the argument. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Make the case. Um, but it, every time I make an argument and somebody responds to it by saying, well, you critique the right too much or you're just trying to curry favor, I read that completely as evasion. I've made an argument about an issue and you, you're not addressing the argument at all. And it reminds me of this old legal adage where you say, if the facts are on your side, pound on the facts. If the law is on your side, pound on the law. And if neither the facts are on law or the law are on your side, pound on the table. Or like and start screaming incoherently. Or scream yeah. incoherently. And so what we see online when you see these allegations of so-and-so's a grifter, so-and-so's engaging in respectability politics, to me, all of that is evasion. Deal with the point that I'm making. And the other thing, Andrew, that I would say is, I think, you know, as a Christian, there's also a particular moral imperative that I have. And the idea that as a Christian, when I see in sort of my own world and my own community and my own fellowship, corruption emerging and cruelty, it I don't think it's biblically right for me to ignore that in favor of constantly weighing in against the left, even though I have a lot of disagreements with the left. And I do write quite a bit in disagreement with the left. But there's a scripture that talks about remove, before you want to take out the speck in someone else's eye, remove the log in your own. Um, the apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth talks about what business is it of you to judge those outside the church? God will judge. And then he says to the church in Corinth, expel the wicked from among you. So in other words, you have to clean your own freaking house, right? And so what ends up happening now, right now in American evangelicalism, get that exactly backwards. You're viewed as somehow disloyal, currying favor. If you deal with the actual existing legitimate problems that are in the church, um, by that standard, those folks would have really disliked Jesus because he spent a lot less time going on going off on the Roman Empire than he did on the Pharisees and the Sadducees within his own community, right? So Jesus was a Jew uh, raised in, uh, you know, in uh, what was at that time occupied Israel, occupied by the Roman art Empire. And, and yet, you know, this sort of idea that no one would say, well, Jesus, stop talking about the Pharisees. Don't you know the Romans are out there? Um, but that's what happens all the time. It's like, David, don't talk about the sex scandal in the SBC. Don't talk about the sex scandal at this giant Christian camp or Ravi Zacharias or the biggest Christian university in the nation or you name it because of Hollywood or because of this or because of that. I just don't see any biblical basis for that argument. And also there's a sort of a common sense element as well. Let's say, Andrew, that, you know, I, we've just met, I don't know anything about your family, but let's say you had a a twin brother who was like a bank robber and, but your next door neighbor, there was some, you know, your next door neighbor was 
a shoplifter. And if you just spent all of your time talking about your next door neighbor shoplifting when you've got a twin brother bank robber, people will think that's a little weird, right? That that's why are you so focused on the state of this other family when your own family is in a state of just miserable disarray? And so this is that's why I just really think this argument that says, well, don't write so much about actual problems that exist on the right because there are actual problems that exist on the left. Um, that's just tribalism. Yeah. Um, but I think one like very interesting strain of the answer you gave when it came to like your willingness to critique um, some of the aspects of, for example, Christian institutions. What like do you think there's often like when it comes to like you're willing to like be very frank about some of the problems, like for example, sex abuse scandals, do you think some of the criticisms like they sort of place like a disproportionate importance on like unity over like um, being truthful about like some of the problems within those uh, like institutions? Yeah. So what you have in American evangelicalism is a lot of sense of existential threat that we are six minutes to midnight. And so there's this enormous pressure to essentially circle the wagons. So the world is hostile. They're coming after us. We need an enormous amount of unity and solidarity if we're going to survive this. And so the argument or the idea or just even the sort of emotional response is, well, if you highlight problems that we have, that gives ammunition to our enemies, that weakens us and strengthens them. So don't do it. And if you're going to do, and, and many people will say, well, don't. I'm not saying don't don't critique. I'm just saying don't do it publicly. There's this whole concept called no enemies to the right that exists in very online spaces where they say all public critique should be against the real enemy, the left. And if you have any problems with the right, well, make that make hash that out privately, which is again, let me let me just go back. Let's let's go back to another biblical concept. Matthew five, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking about, you know, followers of Jesus, you know, followers of his followers. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has have lost its savor, where will it be salted? Um, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. So essentially what Jesus is saying here is, look, there is a special call on the church, right? You're the salt of the earth. There's a special call on his followers. What happens if we lose our saltiness? And it's not then if you lose your saltiness, make sure nobody in the world knows it. <laughs> That's not the answer. Yeah, because like then like if no one in the world knows it, then maybe like you, you've you lost your a bit like like you've lost your saltiness. You've lost the ability to actually have that effect on other people. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. You, you've really lost that ability to. um you what you become actually when you've lost your saltiness or you uh you lose you know you're when you lose that saltiness is you actually become a problem you become part of the problem not part of the solution and and yet what too many christians want to do is say okay we're not going to we're not going to defend liberty we're not going to defend the southern baptist convention but you just need to talk about it less and again again we're where what's the justification what's the basis for that thinking beyond tribalism beyond partisanship what's the basis for that thinking? yeah well they they might like they might view that partisanship as like a desire for unity um 
Would you consider yeah. that? Oh, yeah. I do think there is a there is an absolute desire for unity, but it is a one way. It's a one. It, so essentially, what they're saying is, do uh, unity is doing what we say. Unity is not cleaning our own house. No, unity is doing what we want you to do, interacting the, with the world the way we want you to interact, saying what you want to say. Their idea of unity is compliance, is obedience to them, okay? It is not, or it's it's compliance with their wishes. It is not a holistic, godly kind of unity that is rooted in grace and truth. It's a tribal form of unity that's rooted in uh, conflict and opposition. Yeah, or like a desire to avoid like the necessary conflict to actually get rid of the like the log in your own eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there has to, you cannot get rid of the log in your own eye easily. It is not an easy, easy process. There's this one quote from one of your articles as it pertains to persuasion that I find really fascinating. So I'm going to quote it right now. The distinction between movements that seek converts and movement, there's a distinction between movements that seek converts and movements that hunt heretics. Yep. It's an extremely yep. helpful one. Cultural and political projects centered around winning converts tend to be healthier. They're outward facing and bridge building. Heretic hunters, by contrast, tend to be angrier. They turn movements inward. They believe in addition by subtraction. So this method of winning converts, A, could you elaborate on it it a little bit? And B, how does it affect your own writing and your own rhetorical style? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So... And that that is a I'm not that concept is not is not unique to me. Um, the person who introduced it to me was my really brilliant colleague Michelle Goldberg, and I'm not sure that it's unique to her either. But she has used it very effectively uh, in columns and podcasts. But so essentially, a movement that is if if you if you think okay as a matter of sort of principle and strategy, we want to win people over. Versus, it's a matter of principle and strategy. We want to mobilize our own team. That create the downstream implications for how you interact with the world are immense. In much the same way, if you say my main goal is to end abortion, versus my main goal is to overturn Roe, the downstream strategic and and uh, the downstream sort of uh, cultural and legal and political and strategic implications are immense. Um, so. What I have found, and and I come at this from, I'm a journalist now, a columnist now, but I was a um, lawyer for a very long time. And when I was a litigator, uh, I was always arguing in front of judges and juries who either I didn't know where their predispositions were, or I thought their predispositions might actually be hostile to me. So what that means is if you're going to meet somebody, if you want to persuade somebody, you have to meet them where they are. You have to speak in language they understand. You have to be aware of their critiques of you. And you have to be willing to acknowledge their own when they are right. And you have to be. And so so that you're not persuading somebody if you can't acknowledge when they have a point. You actually alienate them, for example. So in Israel, Gaza dispute one of the hardest disputes imaginable so i'm i'm in favor of israel removing hamas from control of gaza and if i'm arguing with somebody who is opposed to the current israeli military operation 
And in the course of that argument, I just refuse to concede that there might be Israeli actions that are too that have gone too far. Or if I refuse to acknowledge the suffering and humanity of Palestinian civilians, do you think I'm persuasive or do you think I'm alienating? And so, but if I am engaged in this process of trying to build up group solidarity versus persuasion, well, with group, when I'm trying to build up group solidarity, one of the things you would do is you would minimize any sort of argument about Isra potential Israeli bad actions. You will neglect to fully explore or you will refuse to fully explore and deal with the full dimensions of the human tragedy of the loss of innocent Palestinian civilian lives because all of that's inconvenient for this mobilization effort right but then if you're in if you're in this sort of mobilization camp you get frustrated with the persuasion camp because of the very reason that I just highlighted the persuasion camp will acknowledge flaws it will acknowledge when somebody has a a good point on the opposing side. And so these two, again, these two, if you're looking for converts as opposed to hunting for heretics, there's just such so many immense downstream consequences of that. Yeah. And like like a lot of the time when it comes to like you're targeting your rhetoric, like is it is it the sort of thing where you're still willing to speak with full moral clarity? Like you're still willing to like state where your positions are, you're just like framing it in a way that might like sound more palatable to them. Is that it? Well, so obviously, if you're in the enterprise of persuasion, you're trying to bring them to your position. So you have a moral position that is your position that you're trying to bring people to. Yeah. So like you're oh, not hiding the ball, right? You're not hiding the ball. That's persuasion is. So when I was a lawyer, nobody had any confusion on which side I was <laughs> I'm sitting there with my with my client, my and my, you know, like a, my last jury trial was on behalf of a university professor who had been denied a promotion because of his political point of view. Nobody misunderstood where I was. But when I'm meeting this jury, so my client was quite Republican and quite conservative. And as near as I could tell, the jury was quite left-leaning and quite democratic. So how do you reach a quite left-leaning and democratic jury on behalf of a quite conservative Republican um, professor? Well, you got to meet them where they are. That's not compromise. That's persuasion, right? Um, you know, in fact, you know, one of the interesting things about Jesus and his parable and the way he used parables, which were sometimes mysterious, but the way he talked to people was he was meeting people where they were and talking to them in the language that they understood. And, and I think that that's a really critical point. And one of the things, one of the least most infuriating, least persuasive things that you can do is gaslight somebody. And by that, I mean essentially denying reality or denying truth in service of your own agenda. That is absolutely infuriating. Or like your own satisfaction. Right. Yeah. yeah. Do you, uh, do you, what do you mind if I push back against that like a little bit? Um, sure. Yeah. So the whole thing about like how like Jesus like met people where they are, do you think there are times where like, Jesus had like hid his true position behind like several layers of obfuscation and like sort of like hid the ball in that way through the use of like parables. Um, I don't think it's obfuscation. I think what you're talking about is he's trying to articulate eternal principles in a temporal conversation. Okay. And so, um, for example, when he's, he, the, the famous 
the famous incident where he has a coin and he points points to the coin and says, whose face is on the coin? And then he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. That wasn't a, an answer exactly to the idea of sort of what should be the proper rate of taxation on you know on Jewish citizens of the Roman Empire. It was it was not a policy, it was not a direct answer to a very temporal kind of confrontation rooted in that specific time and place in first century Palestine. Jesus, who has his eyes on eternity, is he uses this temporal question to articulate a much more universal principle. But it's articulated in a way that, again, is not designed to be located in any particular precise policy debate, but is sort of identifying some general principles. And I think that that's what was happening a lot of the time with in the, the parables. The parables were a story. We remember stories often so much better than we remember commands or instructions. And so he used stories to illustrate eternal principles in this really powerful way. And these stories, by the way, are again, meeting people in the framework for how they understand the world and life. Um, his goal was not to come to this world and get, come to first century, you know, occupied Israel and give precise guidance for how to navigate Roman rule. Yes, his principles help you navigate Roman rule. They also help you navigate Mongol rule or Islamic rule or Christian rule or mm -hmm. any other kind. And so I think that, you know, he has an eye on the he had always had an eye on the eternal perspective and the universal principle and that always didn't always translate into some immediately tangible precise answer rooted in a con controversy in the first century yeah and but like the like the whole thing about advancing a philosophical position that's a lot more universalist rather than like nitty-gritty empirical like for the specific time and place maybe yeah. that does like give us like once again it gives us more room to disagree with each other about how to apply those principles into the specific context that we're currently living in yeah well you know one of the things that i try to do is if i'm looking at any specific policy question if you'll you'll notice in my writing frequently i pull back to the try to root the answer to the question in a particular philosophical frame. So if you're going to ask, should Israel, again, let's, I'm just going back to the, one of the most contentious current issues, should Israel raid Al-Shifa Hospital or whatever? That's a very precise question yeah. that is rooted, the answer to which is rooted in a broad philosophy. And so it is not actually a quite complete answer to just answer the narrow question. If somebody knows nothing about laws of armed conflict and the whole system that we've established to try to eliminate warfare, and if not eliminate it, minimize its its the suffering associated with it, you have to pull back to the larger frame. And in the larger frame, and then if you can get buy-in on the larger framework, if you have some consensus around the larger framework, you're still going to have disagreement on individual application, but those disagreements become a lot more manageable. Because like you at least have the same starting premises. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I guess like one starting premise, premise that we might have would be like a desire to like critique the more reactionary like elements of 
like Christian institutions. Like, for example, I really love the episode of Good Faith that you did uh, with Nancy about like IBLP, for example. Um, could you give okay. like a 30 to 60 second rundown of just like the whole controversy about IBLP and the Duggar family? Oh, yeah, yeah. So IBNLP, IBLP stands uh, for the Institute and Basic Life Principles. It's uh, formed by Bill Gothard. And it was a fundamentalist movement that arose you know, infancy, early days, 70s, sort of peak 80s, early 90s. And it injected into the evangelical bloodstream a number of extremely legalistic ideas about child, everything from child discipline to marriage to child rearing to uh, clothing to music to child rearing that were extremely legalistic and not presented as sort of one option among many for how to conduct your family life, but as the single most godly option for conducting family life. And the reality was um, the architect of it has now been accused by many, many women of sexual misconduct. Um, some of the leading figures in the movement, like the, the Duggar family, their family has been just torn to pieces by, for example, the, 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 the sexual misconduct of Josh Duggar, uh, I believe he's the oldest son. Can't remember exactly, but um, you know. So these these are not foolproof systems, and they were presented to the public. I've been to the IBLP seminar. They're presented as this is the key. They're presented as the key, and so you would follow those teachings. And if everything wasn't working out perfectly, you would be racked with pain and guilt because you must be doing something wrong. The formula works. The formula is supposed to work. And then you are told if you didn't follow the formula that you're actually going to fall outside of God's protection. And so it's extremely legalistic and manipulative and ultimately, ultimately quite dangerous. Yeah. So like, um, so one of my colleagues, uh, Frances Parrish actually like wrote an article about IBLP culture. And she actually like, she wrote something that I thought was kind of interesting. So I'm going to quote it now. Okay. While in watching the series, it is clear there's an extremely violent and confining side to the story and general IBLP religious evangelical culture. It is hard to access that same perspective as an IBLP follower when it is all you know and were raised with. So when it mm -hmm. comes to like being part of like some of the more reactionary aspects of these institutions that are at the very least coded as traditionalist, do you think it's like, do you think like people that have the more like more knowledge to criticize it? tend to be people that were part of the institutions or people that like that are like part of the outside and like see it like consider themselves outsiders. You have to have both. You absolutely have to have both. So for example, there are critiques of the religious right movement that when I was in the middle of it, I could not see. I was drinking too much Kool-Aid, Andrew. And so I was blind to faults that other people observed. And so, you know, one of the key things that I was blind to was the extent to which the religious right is extremely cruel and hostile. Not everyone, but as a, as a group has been very cruel and hostile to its political opponents. When you're in the middle of it and you're all kind and nice to each other, and then you yourself or the people you're allied with are not cruel to outsiders, it's easy to miss what other people see. But at the same time, the outside critic often doesn't understand the culture or the logic of the movement itself. So you also have to have the internal critic. This is how we get better. So, you know, the the outside critic can see things that the insider can't see, and the insider can see things that the outside critic would never know or understand. 
And so to go back full circle to sort of the beginning of our conversation, if you're going to say that, you know, people on the right should not critique people on the right or people on the left should not critique people on the left, you have just eliminated indispensable critique from the public square, indispensable, unless the only way that that kind of critique is is dispensable is if it's wrong. <laughs> but, you know, these movements, even the most dedicated fundamentalist zealot would say my movement isn't perfect. You know, they, they're, they're, they would have at least enough theological integrity to say that we're not perfect. So therefore, some critique is going to be necessary in any human institution. And this sort of idea that says, well, we don't want to listen to any internal critique and you're a traitor um, because the other side is worse. That's, you're just missing it. You're just missing it. Both external and internal critique are, have their place and are both indispensable in their own way. David French, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.